Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000031 of the mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening. I'd like to start off, as always, by acknowledging the people whose land we are broadcasting from to you this evening, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I always pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging Thank you, Devon, for another excellent episode of Double Bounce. Just brings a week after week. Looking forward to next week, where he's going to do a, a decade wrap-up. No small task, but um, if there's a man that can do it, it is Vaughan. It's good to be back. Um, I'd like to thank Declan for filling in last week while I was away. Actually, Declan will be filling in for me while I take a break in January. But I'll actually be with you until Christmas Eve. So we've got a few more shows to go. Shortly, and speaking of shows, I'll be joined on the line by Rick Morton from the Saturday paper. Rick wrote a brilliant article on the weekend that basically fact-checked a number of claims made by far-right-wing columnist Andrew Bolt in relation to the highly successful Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu. Bolt's column has sparked uh, and released... (laughs) A horde of online trolls, racists and bigots. You know the type. But um, we'll have Rick on in a minute to go through his article in in greater depth. And later in the hour, I'll yarn with uh, Christopher Simpson, who is the director for the Return the Cultural Heritage Project at the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. AXIS negotiated the University of Manchester's museum Um, in collaboration with them in the United Kingdom and the Illinois State Museum in the uh, good old United States of America to bring items of cultural significance home to Aboriginal communities in the Kimberley. So it should be another interesting hour, as always. The best way to get in contact with me is via Twitter. My handle is at MrDTJames. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu has sold over 100,000 copies and has changed, or at least challenged, the way we see the lives of First Nations people before European colonisation. In his Bushman style, Pascoe has popularised a field of history research that has been around for years and brought it to the masses. Next year, the ABC will bring Dark Emu to the screen in the form of a documentary series. Well, I've got to tell you, that news has has been enough to set the Herald Sun's um, resident pundit um, to, to climb out of his pram and basically write an article attacking Pascoe's work and, indeed, Pascoe himself and his heritage. 
In his column of the 21st of November, he wrote, As I wrote on Monday, the very white Pasco has repeatedly claimed he's Aboriginal. What's more, his book claims Aborigines were not what historians have said, primitive hunter-gatherers, but sophisticated farmers in towns of up to a thousand people. The article then goes on to suggest that several of the assertions made in Dark Emu are no more than, and I quote, laughable invention. So to check whether Bolt's attacks were correct, the Saturday paper sent their intrepid senior reporter, Rick Morton, down to the National Library of Australia, where he did some fact-checking. Rick, welcome to the mission, and what did you find? Well, uh, thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Uh, it didn't take long, actually. It took two days to find that uh, none of Bolt's claims about Dark Emu, the book, were borne out by the primary evidence. In fact, Bruce Pascoe has an extensive bibliography in Dark Emu. He has cited the sources. He hasn't misquoted them. And he's, uh, as you mentioned, he's continued a trajectory of research and in, in historical interpretation of Australian history. Um, by bringing it to the forefront. So, you know, Andrew Bolt seems to be very energised and very keen to make sure that the view that used to prevail, that First Nations people were primitive hunter-gatherers, is never challenged or uh, never again sees the light of day. It would seem that in his hurry to clamour into his armour to further ignite the Tyson culture wars, Bolt hasn't actually read the book no, in fact, <laughs> I asked him three times. We had quite an extensive email conversation that went over two days. And yeah, we'll get to that shortly. Words. I've been yeah, I've been reading it with the light. Yes, I could imagine. <laughs> and you know, I asked him three times, among many other questions, "Have you read Dark Emu?" And he went off on tangents, and he answered every other question, or not not every other question. He answered the questions he wanted to talk about, uh, but never once did he say he actually read the book. He refused to uh, refused to engage on that one. So you, you, you've spoken to the, you've actually spoken to the man, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I did it in a way. I wanted to do this article. Not I, I don't see myself as participating in his culture war. Yeah, not I as a hit job. Drag, yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to drag myself down to his level. Um, but what I did want to do was go through the evidence, look at Darkie the book, and then go to Bolt, Andrew Bolt, and say, "Well, what say you?" And the thing that becomes more and more evident as you go through these details is that he's not actually interested in the details because he got many of them wrong himself. Mm. You know, he quoted he quoted the wrong dates for Thomas Mitchell's journal in his own column. Uh, he said it was 1848. It was actually 1833 from memory. Correct. Uh, so basic things like that that he gets wrong. He misnamed the quadrant contributor Roger Carge. He called him Bruce Carge. Uh, he's got many inaccuracies in his own kind of... Uh, column. So I wanted to kind of go to him and at least give him a right of reply, which is more than he offers others. Um, but it wasn't particularly fruitful and I didn't expect it to be because he uh, he wants to avoid uh, the broader issue, which is the fact that he's been very disingenuous, I think, with his attack on Bruce Pascoe and he's playing a game of semantics. Um, you know, he's fixated on this idea that Bruce said in Dark Emu that there was a town of 1,000 people on Cooper Creek and that he attributed this to Charles Sturt, the explorer. Well, that's not attributed to Charles Sturt in Dark Emu. There is no reference to a town of 1,000 people on the Cooper Creek. There is a reference to Charles Sturt and his party being rescued by three to 400 Aboriginal people mm. in a town, uh, in, a, in quite a large settlement. 
where they were given roast duck, uh, they were given honey, they were given baked bread and baked cake, um, and their horses were watered and fed. Um, so in his hunt for tiny semantic details, Andrew has essentially admitted that there was a really large settlement <laughs> on the Cooper Creek, and this is something we are not taught in school, and that's what Bruce is trying to get at here. There's a whole history that we have been avoiding and refusing to talk about. And, and these sources are primary sources. You went down to the uh, National Library of Australia, you checked the primary sources, and they check out. Correct, correct. And I could have done it, uh, which he could have done as well. You can do it with Thomas Mitchell's journals and Charles Sturt's journals online. The reason I went to the library in person was because there are myriad other sources that Bruce also cites in Darcy News where it's helpful to have the actual hard copy mm. because he cites page numbers yes, uh, right. and things like that. So I went there to, to make sure everything married up um, because if you're going to play a game of semantics, then you might want to actually check the sourcing, and I did that. And Darcy New is very rigorously researched. Um, and the thing that Andrew keeps getting caught up in is he seems to think that Bruce is the only one that has ever done this. Um, yeah, that's there right. Are, there are others. Uh, Gamage, I think it's Bill Gamage. Bill uh, Gamage. Right? Yeah, yeah, it, it begs it, in the world. It begs the question: yeah. Why is he? Why is he gone after Bruce Pascoe and not gone over Bill Gamage, who who has basically came to the come to the same outcomes, although via a very different route? It's, it's an interesting question. Correct, and, and Bill's one of many as well. I mean, there are other historians, and, and certainly, I mean, there is nothing radical about what Bruce is proposing. But what is uh, what seems to stick in Andrew Bolt's core is that a uh, Bruce is an Indigenous man, and that be um, he's very pale-skinned, and he, we know that Andrew Bolt has some history um, on that front. He was found in uh, Australian Court of Law to have breached Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act for very similar accusations against other um, Indigenous people who happen to have pale skin. So he's got uh, a bee in his bonnet. Yes, you could say that. A bee in his bolt. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> now you, you mentioned you mentioned the um, racial discrimination discrimination act. Eighteen, I mean, it's a, actually um, a Herculean um, act to, to be able to breach eighteen C yeah. of the racial discrimination discrimination act. You have to go above and beyond, and I won't use the term pale, but you know what I mean. Correct. <laughs> um, Correct. I mean, you have to. You have to, um, I mean, the, the, the bar to prove somebody's uh, uh, acted against the Race Discrimination Act is much higher than the bar to say that somebody is a racist in, 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 to get done in, in defamation. Yeah, 18, 18D of, of, the, of the Act actually almost totally obliterates 18C, but somehow he still managed to do it. Yeah, and that's the one that, you know, when there was that big campaign from the Australian in particular, mm. um, they focused on 18C and, and quite ignored the fact that 18C existed and, and exempt almost all uh, news media in any way, shape or form. So just to bring um, the listener in here, I'll, I'll just read a little bit of the judgment from, uh, it was EDOC yeah, versus, uh, versus Bolt um, from 2011. And the judge wrote in um, uh, his um, findings, I'm satisfied that the fair-skinned Aboriginal people or some of them, were likely in all circumstances to have been offended, insulted, humiliated or intimidated by the imputations conveyed by the newspaper articles. People should be free to fully identify with their race without fear or public disdain or loss of self-esteem for so identifying. Disparagement directed at the legitimacy of the racial identification of a group of people is likely to be destructive of racial tolerance 
just as disparagement directed at the real or imagined practices or traits of those people is also destructive of racial tolerance. Now, it would seem that, um, that um, Andrew has never gotten over that, and the campaign that he is now, um, I guess, waging against Bruce Pascoe could be said to be exactly the same thing. Well, it certainly run along similar lines, and it may uh, we may yet see a court case on this front. Who knows? I don't. Um, but I do know that his attacks on Bruce Pascoe preceded the publication of Dark Inuit. So it's not really about the book Dark Inuit. Yeah. It's about the fact that um, Andrew Bolt seems to have a problem with Bruce Pascoe, the man, um, who he keeps very snidely referring to as whiter than agriculture. Yeah. Um, with a face wider than agriculture. And this is, you know, this is what kind of gives the game away for Andrew because, you know, I asked him, why why are you so offended by the fact that Bruce has this interpretation of the primary documents? And, and he tries to turn the tables and say he's really only offended about finding the truth and he's offended about possible fraud. Um, but history goes back well before Dark Union. And I think that is an extraordinarily telling clue um, about what is motivating all of this. It's 19 past seven. You're listening to The Mission on R 102.7 FM. Now, to the question of, of identity, and it has to be, it has to, we have to talk about it because it's, um, yeah, it's become an issue for, you know, for, for mainstream Australia, but it's also, as you would know, Rick, more than others, become an issue for people online, particularly on Twitter, both black and mm-hmm. white. Um, Pascoe himself has been very open about his Aboriginal and his journey into his own identity, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, he wrote uh, quite a beautiful um, piece of Griffith Review in 2012 after the attack from Andrew Bolt, two years before Dark Inuit was, was released. And he talks about this kind of search for his own ancestry. It's something that had only ever been whispered about in his own family. Mm. Now, full disclosure, I'm white. Um, but I, I did grow up, so I can't really talk about what it means to, to have that ancestor. But I did grow up in outback Queensland, and there were always whispers in my own family about um, the kind of the brutality of the white settlers, and my grandfather was one of them on the Birdsville track. And I know that he, at one point in his life, uh, at least sexually assaulted an Indigenous woman um, and got off. Right. Never, never went to court for it. And so I know that, and, and that is not an uncommon story. Yes. And... I don't know what Bruce's history is, but I do know that right across this landscape there was written violence and, and people were stolen from their families, there were massacres, uh, records were destroyed, and there is, there is and was so much shame about the idea that you might have an Aboriginal ancestor. But people didn't talk about it, and, and Bruce, I think, alludes to that when he, when he talks about his search mirroring the troubles of colonial Australia and the violence and... and family searching for for these members. So, you know, it's such a... To me, it's such a cruel incursion from Andrew Bolt because you know, he does this thing which is such an awful magician trick where he says, I'm just asking the question. Um, why won't Bruce answer the question? Mm. Um, well, to be fair, because you, you have no right. That's right. Uh, you have no right. And that and that goes to... That goes to um, you know, other Indigenous people on social media, unless you are part of the mob that um, uh, Bruce says he is, and we have no question to doubt that, then, Stung, you don't get to have an opinion on whether Bruce or anyone else 
is Aboriginal. You're actually breaking a whole range of cultural protocols by doing that. And social media is certainly not the platform in which to question people's identity. So we need to keep that in mind as we move forward because as time goes on and the treaty process here in Victoria continues on, we are digging deeper and deeper and deeper into our own identities, our own mobs, finding out where we are. And we must always remember um, we are stronger united than we are divided. So I'll just step down. I'll just step down off this uh, sermon box now. <laughs> now, oh, no, I like the sermon box. <laughs> um, so, like you, Bolt has been very meticulous in his research. Whereas you spent days in the National Library of Australia, Bolt yeah. has clicked on a website called Dark Emu Exposed. Um, yeah. Who the runs that? Yes, the font of all knowledge. Who runs that website, and where do they get their material? So we did a domain check. Uh, on the website, and it's registered to a man called Roger Card, who is described by uh, another failed um, history man, Keith Windchuttle, mm-hmm. as a history enthusiast. Now, Andrew Bolt decides to call him a scientist uh, in his column, but even Keith Windchuttle, who wrote uh, a book in the year 2000, I think, about the fact that the Selwyn generation was a myth, quote-unquote, uh, even Keith Windchuttle doesn't extend to Roger Card anything beyond the label of it historian, uh, uh, history enthusiast. Now these, you know, there are a bunch of other contributors to Dark Emu, uh, one of which is Peter O'Brien, mm-hmm. who has just self-published his own book um, purporting to expose Dark Emu and, and fact-check it. And I noticed that in a lot of the, uh, the commentary of late, there are a lot of links to that book, and I'm, I'm, I hope his sales are doing great. Um, but these people are not reputable people. Um, somebody asked me to to look at the Dark Emu website um, after my article came out, and, and frankly, I think I've, I've gone low enough <laughs> with Bolt. <laughs> I, I looked at the website before I wrote my article. Um, I certainly don't trust their judgment. Um, in fact, a lot of everything that they were reporting, which Bolt has listed, almost holes bolus, which is quite evident because he didn't uh, respond to my questions about whether he read the book. Yeah, uh, A lot of the stuff they have written is... Uh, it's coming from a place of of quite grotesque um, politics. You know, in, in one of the uh, one of the lists, I don't think it was Dark Union Exposed, but one of the people who were in that in that orbit, uh, who whose website was being tweeted by uh, another woman on Twitter, they have a list of all the white people that were killed by Indigenous people at the end of their website. Right. Um, so you can see the, the cogs turning and why they are doing what they are doing. So there's, there's, there's kind of, you know, it's, yeah. it's steeped in ignorance and it's probably soaked in a degree of white nationalism, isn't, isn't it? Well, there are, there are streets of that everywhere. And, and, and it, it seems to me that the reason this angers, this topic angers people so much, or, or certain types of people anyway, is that it removes uh, what was a very convenient excuse, which is we settled Australia because we were doing the Aboriginal people a favour, yeah. because they were savages. In fact, in one of his replies to me, Andrew Bolt uh, talks about uh, children uh, who were uh, apparently uh, killed when they were born by these quote-unquote savages, um, you know, and then tries to turn the tables on me for expressing uh, the view that I have that uh, well, not the view, but, but reporting the idea that Bruce has interpreted history as saying that maybe they were more civilised than we ever gave them credit for, and somehow that's the racist point of view. And the irony of all of this is that 
there are legitimate historical debates, and there will always be legitimate historical debates about the level of evidence for uh, certain claims about uh, Aboriginal civilisation. Mm. But Bruce is not alone in making them. Uh, other very... <laughs> You know, Tom Griffith is a professor of ANU, uh, history at ANU, yep. wrote a, a glowing review in Inside Story. It was, yeah. Says, yeah. Bruce has been continuing the work of other people, very well-credentialed people, more PhDs than the people at Dark Inu Exposed have, um, on this issue. And the thing is, you can have a discussion about, well, what does this mean? Because I personally don't think that, if none of this turned out to be the case, I don't think it does anything to take away from the fact that Indigenous uh, culture survived for 80,000 years on this continent, which is the oldest living culture, uh, unbroken culture in the world, and that is an extraordinary success. And that alone should should be enough to to cancel out the excuse that we were saving these people from themselves. Well, I always um, I always say, you know, when people say, well, you know, where where would the Aborigines be, you know, without European, you know, settlement colonisation in Australia? I'll say, well probably be still the most successful ongoing civilization that the world's ever seen. Yep. Uh, and yep. that is something to be proud of, whether the claims in Dark Emu are founded or not, which they are. Correct. Um, yep. There's still a tremendous amount to be, to be, to be proud of. Now you and Andrew have um, become pen pals and yep. you've been, um, yep. and you've been sharing some of that correspondence on Twitter in particular. What have you two been corresponding about? Well, look, I mean, I started out with a set of about eight questions. Where, you know, number one, have you read Dark Uh Number two, are you aware that uh, the quote that you attribute uh, to Bruce Pascoe in Dark Emu is not actually what is in Dark Emu? Um, it is a quote, uh, quite inaccurately, Charles, meeting the, the, uh, the village or the settlement of three to 400 Aboriginal people. Uh, I asked him about the fact that he got the dates wrong when he's quoting Thomas Mitchell's journal. Um, inaccurately. I asked him uh, about whether uh, the animal pens, mm. you know, he, he went off about the animal pens. He said, oh, what could they possibly have kept in these pens? Dingoes, koalas, wallabies. Um, but never once mentioned in all of his writing the fact that David Lindsay, who was a surveyor in 1883, I think it was, in his surveying of uh, Arnhem Land, came across uh, another settlement, uh, quite a permanent one, of about 500 huts. 500 indigenous people anyhow uh, and he noticed that there were these small enclosures on the back that looked very much like animal yards um, and quote unquote as if to keep game alive mm. um, and that's just one of the references there are more but Bolt doesn't want to talk about that he just wants to poke fun and you know for somebody with such a platform he, he became very uh, aggravated I mean at one point he wrote back, wrote back to me and said well trust you to make this all about me and not <laughs> Uh, Bruce Pascoe, and then he said, I, I asked very rude questions. Yeah, I saw that. Fact, I saw, and I saw your correspondence to him, and it was as polite, you know. I asked him how he was doing, I hope that he was well, and I genuinely mean that. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not here to pray, I mean, this is what he does, right? Yeah, it's not a hit job. He picks on people. It's not a hit job, and I don't, you know, I've never, I've never done a hit job on Andrew Bolt. Um, it's just the fact that in this particular area that I know something about, uh, he's written quite an egregiously wrong set of columns based on the work of other people that he himself has not checked, which is rule number one in journalism. If you're going to write something uh, or repeat something secondhand, you check it for yourself. 
Um, and, you know, I'm being too kind calling him a journalist. But, yeah, he became very aggravated about that. And I actually made a point to him. I haven't tweeted this, but I did make a point at the very end of that exchange. I'm like, you know, for somebody with your your column who has made a career out of targeting people and vilifying them, yeah, uh, you seem to be very insecure about even the slightest criticism or, or the fact that you are being questioned because the great irony is, of course, if I hadn't gone to him with my questions, he would have been even more up in arms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. that is a big no-no. And he's been, he's been so, publishing, you know, um, uh, pieces on his blog that still continue to sort of try and, and bring Dark Emu down and, and, and Bruce down. But, um, you know, the piece of work that you've done now stands there as, as, an, as a testament, as a, as a fact to, you know, the ignorance that he's been spewing out over the last, you know, few weeks in, in particular. Correct. Correct. And I, look, I mean, I, um, I read the first, after I published the piece, I read uh, a piece that he published then in response which also had many factual errors. I mean, he mentions that he can't find anywhere any instance of Aboriginal people giving honey to the explorers. Well, I mean, I've got four on my phone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that was just the thing. I didn't read the whole thing. And I've stopped reading them now because there was another one today that I only know about because someone tweeted me a screenshot where he got my name wrong and called me Adam Morton. Right. Uh, So, you know, just the three major errors in three columns uh, just on this one issue uh, and just they're the easy ones to spot without having to do any of the research. And it's just like, you know, nothing more for me will be gained from going back and, and getting into the dirt. Um, the fact is, you can go and do this for yourself. Um, and most of it can be done online. You don't even need to go to a library. But um, but if you want to, it's a very pleasant way to spend two or three days. In yeah, the room, sure. Um, particularly the National Library. And, and, and Bolt, I think, is really angry about the fact that he was so... The mask was so easily removed, and, and uh, that might explain some of this acting out. It is 28 to 8. Um, I'm speaking with Adam Morton. I mean, I'm sorry, Rick Morton. Um, <laughs> before I before I let you go, um, your article now, like I said, is there for um, all to see, and it will stand the test of time, um, as well as Dark Emu and a whole bunch of other historical research that has drawn the same conclusion. And so the argument now as to the accuracies of those particular documents is now between historians. People are actually trained to do and have a critical analysis of what um, history is, what it means, and and the context in which it was written and the motivations of of the people writing it. Can I make a quick point on that? Sure. Historians with PhDs and professors will have this conversation and there will be disingenuous people who will use that as evidence that Bruce was wrong. Um, And may I just say (laughs) that this is what history is. They are still doing this against Egypt. They're doing it with Rome, they're doing it with the Middle East during the Bible years. They do it with every element. You know, history is not a static thing. Exactly. It evolves with our understanding of it and with our interpretation of it. And this will happen with Bruce's book, and and so it should. But it should not happen at the hands of somebody who doesn't understand what they're talking about. Exactly. I think, um, and I, I think we'll leave it here, but I think Marcia Langton actually said it on Twitter probably the best last week. She said, the critic of Dark Emu was a job for actual historians, not Andrew Bolt and others who benefit financially from tearing apart the lives of people looking for family. And I think on, on that note, I think we'll leave it there, Rick. Thank you so much Thank for your time. No, Daniel, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Woo! Ah, that's right. 
Triple R. My name is Daniel. You're listening to The Mission this Tuesday evening. This um, uh, show just flies along. And so now to our, um, to our next guest. The repatriation of items and remains of people and cultures is a process that is more prevalent around the world probably than ever before, particularly in areas where colonial powers, old and new, have come into contact with First Nations people. Last week, the Nyamal people from Western Australia held a ceremony to welcome cultural heritage material that was recently repatriated from the Manchester Museum um, in the University of Manchester in what I'm sure was a very moving occasion. But that, of course, doesn't happen by itself. A lot of hard work goes into bringing these items home. And that's where our next guest comes in. Christopher Simpson is the director of the Return of Cultural Heritage Project at the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. And he's on the line now to tell us about the project. Christopher, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks, Daniel, and uh, thanks for having uh, the mission for having me on. Really appreciate it. Absolutely no problem at all. Um, let's start with the, the project itself that you're the director of. Tell us about the, uh, the Cultural Heritage Project. Okay, it's part of a suite of measures that uh, where next year we mark the 250th anniversary of the arrival of Captain Cook. Uh, and we would say from, from the Institute uh, that marked also the removal of our cultural heritage pro, uh, cultural heritage items uh, into you know overseas for um, studying or just for people's collections so um, from from that date from 1770 onwards our items have been removed and uh, the institute you know put a put a pitch to government that we would like to uh, you know test and and do a bit of a scoping uh, project to you know, see what items are out there and uh, see if we could repatriate some items. So you know, some of the outcomes of the project is to return cultural heritage items, uh, to create relationships with communities uh, and create relationships with communities and overseas collecting institutions. Also, you know, to put together an accessible database so communities can see and find out where their cultural heritage items are and, and finally put a pitch uh, to, to government for further investment in, in this space. So that's a, you know, a little bit about the, the, the project and we've, we've been going since about November uh, last year. Oh, that's when I was brought on as the director and uh, you know, quite excitingly, as you said, uh, last, last week we repatriated some, some cultural heritage items uh, to the Nyamal people from the Manchester uh, Museum and that was really, really, really exciting. I can imagine. Um, where, where do you even start with, with a project like that? Well, it, it's actually pretty good. We we wrote to um, uh, we wrote to over 160 collecting institutions that we, we believe hold Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander material. Uh, we, we've got a world class. Um, uh, it's a, a that's an Aboriginal Studies Press that works out of the the institute, and we published some um, items from Carol Cooper back in nine the late 80s, mm-hmm. and uh, that that had she did some research and you know, uh, found out some items that were found in overseas collecting institutions. So we used that as a base, uh, started you know, writing to you know, 160 odd collecting institutions, and that built to about 220. We were just you know, introducing the concept of the project and what we'd like to achieve out of it, and we got an overwhelming response from those collecting institutions, like nearly more than uh, 200, uh, nearly more than 100 collecting institutions responded and started sharing information with us and over 
well, nearly 40 collecting institutions actually want to, um, you know, consider a repatriation request. So we'd actually be really, really excited with that. Yeah, that's uh, that's phenomenal. It's such a um, a reversal of form, I suppose. You know, getting some of these items back over over the years has been like getting blood out of a stone. Yeah, it, it's, look, we, we would see that there could be a, a shift. Um, and, 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 you know, there with the current movement of decolonising collecting institutions, um, that collecting institutions are quite interested to, to hear um, from communities that want to have their items returned. Um, and as we played uh, like a negotiated middleman, if you would say, uh, between the communities and the collecting institutions and you know, put applications in uh, to both the Illinois State Museum and to the Manchester Museum, and both of them said yes to unconditionally repatriate 85 items. So 42 from Illinois State Museum and 43 from uh, the Manchester Museum. So that was really, really exciting. Gee, you must have, you must have popped open something or other to, to celebrate that when you got that sort of unconditional response. Well, look, uh, it was the, the most exciting thing uh, was to ring up the communities uh, that we've been working with and inform them that we were successful. I I guess for them it was just you know they were it was just you know screams of joy, excitement. Um, you know some were shocked and asked, well, were we you know have, were we pulling their legs or having a lie? And you know they were very 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 excited to hear that news. And 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 also the collecting institutions that were um, you know returning those items, they were really really excited to be a part of it. No, that's that's fantastic. Um, it is seventeen to wait. You're listening to the mission. I'm speaking with uh, Chris Simpson, who is the director of the Return of a Cultural Heritage Project at the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. Um, so these were returned. These items were returned to the Niamal people um, from the Kimberley. Describe some of the items that have been returned and their significance to to the mob up there. Well, the, the Nyamal community, they're out in the Pilbara, um, and then the Bardi Jawi people that we've okay. invited to, they're up in the, up in the Kimberley. Right. But the significance to some of these items uh, is, is amazing, especially the ones that I can talk about, because some of the items were, you know, secret, sacred, ceremonial, men's business items, which I'm not at liberty to discuss, but the sure. items that I can discuss, uh, especially to the Nyamal, um so there, there were some, uh, you know, two headpieces that are, uh, one headpiece that was worn, uh, and then there was another emu feather uh, piece as well that's worn. And when, when we opened the boxes and, you know, showed those senior men uh, those items, they, they were so excited because the busters, they can't find out um, in the Pilbara anymore, and they were really, really excited to see those items come back home. And they're actually going to take them out to, you know, this year when they do their... Um, law and ceremony and men's business and actually take them out to the other senior men, show them, talk about that and then talk about the uh, that are up and coming through the ranks. So that is really, really exciting that some of these items are going to get put back into in, into service. But just to see the joy on those the, the men's faces, it's just, it's unexplainable. I, I, I get told when um, we bring these items back that the the community and the, the the people that are receiving the items say that these items are they're jumping up and down because wow. um, they're excited to be home, um, and that's something you know quite phenomenal. And when when we return those items to the Bardi Jawi, there was actually silence. We had the Bardi Jawi Rangers helping us 
you know, un- undo the boxes. And when we lifted the lid, it was just, uh, you know, they were gasping um, in awe of these, you know, cultural artefacts that were coming home. And, you know, the, some of those, the, to the Bardi Jawi, there were spears and shields and, and boomerangs. Um, there was a water-carrying water instrument. There was a little toy raft that uh, they, they made for uh, the collector. It was just really, really amazing. And see, you know, some of the men had never seen items like this, young, younger men. Mm. And, you know, the spears were made of bamboo, and they were just you know, really in awe and looking at them. And to, to be, you know, really exciting, uh, the boomerangs are a ceremonial uh, boomerang, and, and they started playing them and singing. So I guess, you know, these items were getting put straight back into use, getting Gee. sung to, getting held, doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, you know, not hiding in a uh, behind a glass case or in, in a dusty shelf, uh, sitting in the basement of a museum. These items were instantly, um, you know, brought out, put back into use, and that is something that we would say is why it's so important and to to assist with the intergenerational discussions and sharing of culture uh, to to communities because they use these items and these items also tell a story and it helps tell a story and it helps share those stories so that that's something that's really amazing so in short the work that you do actually breathes new life into into culture around the place yeah yes it yes it does and it also it all reinforces uh why culture is so so important and you know having these artifacts home well let's call them objects because artifacts you'd sort of think that you know, you've got to really be you know kid glove and gentle hand but now they're getting put back into use. They're seeing the techniques that the old, uh, their ancestors used and how much time that they would spend in carving them and, uh, you know, not using the, you know, the tools that we have today. So that's, that's also something exciting to see what they did back then and to see what type of practices that they use now. So when were these um, items taken in the first place? So we believe the items from the Nyamal, which is in the Pilbara, uh, that was collected back in the 1890s wow. uh, by a collector called Emil Clement. And the condition that these items were in were just absolutely fantastic. And uh, it was great to see the, how well they'd been preserved and looked after. And the, the, uh, the community was you know, very grateful of how they'd been looked after. But I guess for them it was their time to come home. And some of these senior men... Uh, and senior women that we have to be able to use these items to tell stories and pass culture down. We, we've only got a you know a few maybe a decade or two decades left with them, so that's quite mm. vital that these are home. Um, the items we got from the, for the Bardi Jawi was collected by a, a linguist Gerhard Lars in in the 1930s. Uh, spent a couple of months out in the community up there at One Arm Point, and uh, that got deposited over in uh, the Chicago University, and later on transferred to the um, Illinois State Museum, where they sat for about eighty years. It sounds like a job that you do almost do for free, Chris. It is a very, very culturally grounding uh, job. It makes my heart sing. Um, it also not just makes my heart sing, but you know we've got a great team of guys and girls at the institute that are so passionate about this. And uh, when we get these items home and when, when they said yes, it was such an excitement and everybody was, you know, as you said, it was really celebrations all around that we were, we were amazed that these items uh, were, were going to come home. So as you mentioned um, earlier in, um, in, in our discussion, 
more and more universities and institutes and museums are now signing up to you know repatriate these items um what what other projects have you got coming up next uh, so we we still have some items to bring back from the manchester museum so we're taking two uh, language groups over there the yaru from uh, the kimberley in broome and the Arunda, uh, so in central australia we're taking those over to finalize that repatriation uh, and then from there we will you know, do our final report from the project. The project ends on the 30th of June in 2020. But we're, we're quietly confident and we're really hoping to see a, an extension of this. Um, and, you know, we've demonstrated that uh, there's the willing of communities to have them home, uh, willing of collecting institutions to return uh, those items. And, and, and we've identified over 100,000 items mm. and uh, we've got a, a line-up of... Our 40 collecting institutions that want to partner with us. And it's not just about bringing items home. It's also, I guess, creating a relationship and a partnership with communities and those collecting institutions. So the items that, you know, we don't want all the items home, and this is the message that we get from some of the communities, uh, because they, they definitely want their secret sacred items home. Mm. But they love to have their culture on display for the world to see, but they want to contextualise that yeah, and, right. and give it give it its full story. And instead of just being a spear sitting in a box that says C22 collected by Mr Smith, uh, we could give that, um, you know, the artefact or the boomerang or the spear, its language name and how it was created and who created it. Um, what it was used for and really, you know, bring that item to life. So when the world looks at the oldest continuing culture in the world, uh, it can really um, give that full picture and that full story for it. So we're really excited about that as well. That, that is such a generous gesture by some of those communities, you know. So, well, okay, if you're going to have it, put it on display, contextualise it and help us celebrate our culture. Yes, that, that's right. And we would say with our relationship that we have with the University of Manchester, the Manchester Museum, uh, we formalised our relationship with them and uh, signed a memorandum of understanding and we can see a great future and partnership between uh, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies and that museum and that can really you know, contextualise and bring those items to life so when people are going to see them, uh, they get that full picture of it. So that's another aspect of the project that is, you know, quite positive and it and it shares our culture, the world's oldest continuing culture, with the world. Well, thanks so much for your time, Chris, and thank you so much for your work. I'm telling you, your work is not going to be completed by 2020. So um, I, yeah, hope, yeah. I, hope, I hope the funders realise that. But, um, you know... quietly confident. Yeah, you should be. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Excellent. Thanks, Daniel, and thanks to the guys uh, and, and the listeners out there on the mission. Cheers. Three. Triple. That is correct. It is Tuesday evening, and you are listening to Triple R. And for the last 56 minutes and 27 seconds, you've been listening to The Mission. Me, Daniel James, thank you very much to Rick Morton and Chris Simpson for their valuable time and expertise. So lucky to get to speak to people that are smarter than me week in, week out, which is not hard, but still, it's a pleasure. Until next week, uru. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. 
The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>